Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. Today's show focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm Christina Lulich. And I'm David Escobar. And here are this week's feature stories. This week on the What's What podcast, we reported on former President Trump's indictment by a prosecutor in Georgia. To help us break down the story, WFUV's Jaya Joyce and I were joined by our WFUV political reporter, Jay Doherty. They discussed the terms of the indictment and the impact it could have on the 2024 presidential election. So, Jay, what exactly are the terms of this newest indictment? Well, the indictment claims that Donald Trump and 18 others, quote, refused to accept that Trump lost, and they knowingly and willfully joined a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election in favor of Trump. The scheme allegedly involved multiple instances of racketeering in and out of Fulton County, Georgia, and that's where the investigation actually took place. Can you explain what specific actions Trump and his allies are being accused of? Absolutely. The investigation led by Fannie Willis revolves around Trump's alleged efforts to influence the 2020 election results in Georgia. The focus sprouts from a now famous phone call Trump had with Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. The former president urged him to, quote unquote, find enough votes to overturn the election results in the state after Trump had already lost to Joe Biden there. So that sounds like a significant development. But I'm wondering what makes this indictment stand out from the rest? That's a great question. This indictment is the most comprehensive one involving Trump so far. There's a total of 41 counts across 19 individuals, including the former president. Over half of those counts relate to forging false documents and making false statements. The charges range from election fraud and computer tampering to impersonating public officials and even perjury. This indictment is much bulkier, wide-ranging, and complex than previous ones. But what's really unique about this case is that it directly accuses Trump and every individual charged in the indictment of violating Georgia's RICO Act. RICO is short for Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations. It's a law designed to address patterns of illegal activity carried out by groups aiming to control or protect some kind of enterprise. That could be a family, a gang, an institution, or even in this case, a presidential campaign. So how has Trump responded to these recent developments? Well, Trump has consistently labeled these investigations and indictments as a politically motivated witch hunt. He maintains that his actions, including that phone call, were geared towards uncovering voter fraud and safeguarding the integrity of the election rather than attempting to meddle with the election results. And Jay, let's shift gears to former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who's one of the people included in this indictment. How has this affected him financially? Well, David, Giuliani has openly expressed his financial woes. He's facing hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal bills and sanctions. Uh, The former New York City mayor has said that these legal matters have, quote, left him out of cash. He even responded to the sanctions and fees by listing his Manhattan apartment for six and a half million dollars. It's also interesting to note that Giuliani is being charged with the type of law he actually helped to innovate as a prosecutor in New York in the 80s. He allegedly violated Georgia's RICO Act, which is based on the federal RICO law. Congress passed that law in the the 70s to help combat organized crime, and Giuliani famously used it to his advantage in New York to take down the five families, who were the mob groups that operated across the country. Now let's zoom out for a wider view. Given the upcoming 2024 presidential election, political implications are inevitable. How could this case potentially impact Georgian politics? Well, Georgia's status as a swing state in recent elections makes this case all the more significant. The case could intensify political divisions within Georgia and beyond. 
and the legal situation surrounding Trump could energize both his supporters and his opponents, potentially influencing the upcoming presidential elections. That was WFUV's Jay Doherty bringing us the latest on the Trump indictment in Georgia. Osborne Association is a New York City-based nonprofit that works with people impacted by the criminal legal system. They help prepare incarcerated individuals for successful reentry, but they're facing budget cuts from the Department of Correction. So, WFUV's Maya Sargent sat down with Arkna Jayaram, the president and CEO of Osborne Association, to discuss their work and the consequences of these cuts for New Yorkers. I would love if you could just start by describing um, Osborne Association and its approach. So Osborne Association has been around for 90 years. Um, We have been working with incarcerated people for our entire history of 90 years. Our current approach is to think about it in sort of three, three ways. One is to prevent people from coming into incarceration. So we would call that diversion or alternatives to incarceration. The sort of flip side of that is reentry support. So if you've been incarcerated either in jail or in prison, that on your sort of reentry back to the community that we're providing supports that will help you be successful in that reentry. Um, and then I think the other piece is just around, you know, wherever we can intervene to shorten the amount of time people spend incarcerated and to ensure that the conditions of their incarceration are humane and are um, creating space for maintaining connections with community and family. How is um, Osborne Association working to address the needs, and you touched on this, needs of people following incarceration? But then I guess the angle, how does this play out against the recent public discourse surrounding conditions um, at Rikers? So with regard to the conditions on Rikers, um, I think a number of the challenges that we see on Rikers have to do with a very high population, um, you know, comparatively low Uh, to history, but comparatively high to the most recent past, particularly around COVID, where the numbers got to be pretty low. Um, We're seeing an increase in case processing time, meaning that detainees who should be experiencing a speedy trial are um, taking a a longer time to get their case processed. Um, There's a number of reasons for those delays. They can happen at the judiciary level. They can happen with the attorneys that are involved. They can happen with the production to court by the Department of Correction. The thing that happens when court processing doesn't happen as fast as it should is that the people who are incarcerated, who are really detainees and are only there pending the outcome of their case, are living in a really uncertain time where they're just cycling and waiting for their next court date and ultimately are not um, in a stable setting. Um, And so it just creates a lot of tension and frustration. Uh, It's also a really big bill that the city ends up paying. You touched on it briefly, but what are talking about community and meeting people where they are and getting people back on their feet? What do you think are some of the misconceptions about incarcerated people? There's a dehumanizing kind of effect, um, both in terms of being incarcerated and what you experience when you're incarcerated, but also in terms of the way that we, as a general public, sort of uh, perceive what it means to be an incarcerated person. I've never met an incarcerated person who doesn't care about their community and their family and the impact that their incarceration has on their loved ones. And I think it is just a sense of like, those are dangerous bad guys. And I think the idea that we can reduce our brothers and sisters to something so simple is, 
you know, that's like a real flaw in our humanity. And I think that's something that we just really have to, to work to understand that there's more to that story and like, don't believe the sort of superficial stereotypes that you hear. That was WFUV's Maya Sargent talking with Arkana Jayaram about her work at Osborne Association. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What Weekly wrap-up every week for more features exclusively from the WFUV Newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast every weekday at 3 for the latest local news and feature stories from FUV. And as always, you can find out more at the WFUV News website. I'm Christina Lulich. And I'm David Escobar. And that's What's What. What's What.